What up? Hey, what up? All right. He says that he's able to get in this time. I think his phone's just a little bit slower than us because he said he was connecting. So I definitely think. Ah, here we go. What's up, Cam? Hey, what up? How's it going? Okay. So. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> so I believe this is episode 10 of Mullen's Chow, right? We're in the double. Oh, yeah, that's right. We're in double digits now. All right. Well, Cam, I'm going to introduce you a little bit, um, and then we can roll right into the episode. Uh, Cam Bailey, I met at the University of Minnesota when I was getting my MBA. I met him through his fiance, uh, the wonderful Sam Hodges. Both Sam and Cameron Bailey have worked in nonprofits all across the country. Uh, Cam got his undergrad from Rutgers University in civil engineering and then got his master's in urban and regional planning at the Humphrey School at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities, uh, which is one of the top public affairs schools in the country, and has a long career of um, working in transportation infrastructure and now um, working with solar energy. Uh, Did I miss anything, Cam? Uh, that's pretty succinct and accurate. I think that's all right. <laughs> we connected originally over the fact that uh, you grew up in Mesa, Arizona, um, and that you were a Navy brat. That's true. <laughs> so you have been to a lot of different yeah. Navy bases, right? Yeah, it's it's kind of weird when you say that, like Navy brat, but hometown Mesa, Arizona. What's the Navy doing in the desert? <laughs> oh, my God. I remember being in the sweeping, and you hear it all the time, especially when right. you those uh, water camos, the digital camos. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I've never heard that one before. It's really original. <laughs> yeah, <It's> really. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, Cam, you're a hip-hop guy, right? Uh Less so nowadays, but I, I, I still stay on the game as best I can. Okay. Let's make sure. The first thing we wanted to talk about was, wow, uh, Mac Miller just passed this afternoon. Yo, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. It was oh. uh, an apparent drug overdose. Dang. Oh, just to clarify, uh, cursing friendly or not? Uh, yeah, be yourself. Okay, cool. Damn, bro. <laughs> Is damn a curse word now? <laughs> I don't know. I think it depends, like, which church you go to. <laughs> <laughs> which church are we looking out for now? Right, right. <laughs> wow, that's a trip. Yep, damn. that's another one. So we've had another uh, rapper overdose this year. And we're. I, do you think that's some kind of a trend that we're seeing with uh, in hip hop these days with the uh, the various uses of opiates? Yeah, that's that's kind of right because you think about. I mean, you think of hip hop and its origins being based in the black community and the crack cocaine epidemic uh, in the country, and that you didn't see a rash of you know, drug overdoses, uh, or at least not that I recall. I mean, I wasn't kicking it and cognizant in the 70s and 80s, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm thinking if it's a, it's a national epidemic where, you know, you see it in 
middle class, upper class, white neighborhoods, rural, urban, suburban. So, you know, why should hip hop be? I mean, you know, why would hip hop yeah. be spared in that? Especially as exactly, it's such a globalized genre now that crosses, you know, all, all every every sort of demographic you can identify. Um, so I guess, yeah, no real surprise, but damn, it's sad. Yeah, and that's a great point too. Bringing up that it is a, it's a worldwide and a national problem. The uh, opioid epidemic. So you hear a lot of people that grew up in earlier uh, generations that were into hip hop, the older heads, as it were. They they tend to think it's just these kids that have drug problems, and they think it's something about making lean and codeine and stuff like that seem cool. I think it's a combination of all these things because it's a it's a problem. It's an epidemic for a reason. So I think that uh, it's, it could be more of a reflection of what's actually going on in society. Yeah, I mean, you look back to even like the 50s and 60s and, and Elvis and um, Johnny Cash. A lot of these guys had drug problems. I think it's mm-hmm. the artistic community in general and particularly the music community for whatever reason. I mean, I remember in the early 2000s, people used to say that music was the junk bonds of the entertainment industry. And so what it could also be is just like you see in the rest of American society, a lot of people are doing the drugs, but the people who end up getting the worst effects are the people who have the least amount of wealth, you know, um, because they can't go to uh, rehab as easily. And I'm not saying that these rappers are, are um, not rich. I mean, I think Mac Miller probably was doing quite okay, but I just think that the culture of music tends to not have some of the built-in protections that maybe let's say the film industry um, has or the tech industry because tech is becoming more of a artistic pursuit than it used to be. Yeah, that's interesting with that. I think about that uh, die like a rock star and he just rattles off the different Hollywood act overdoses, like even back to like Marilyn Monroe, right? And uh, I think about that, so like, I don't know if it's exclusive within the hip-hop industry. You know, which hip-hop artists we're talking about? If you were to tell me, um, you know, like K-Dot or, or um, uh, J. Cole, a drug overdose, I'd be mad, shocked by that. But probably in the same vein, shocked by, like, Bourdain suicide or... Um, the lead singer from Lincoln Park or dude from Audio Slave. Uh, a lot of people are really shocked by those suicides, which are also indicative of um, an illness in the country because suicide rates aren't, they're not low in the United States. Right? Like, we run some high suicides in the world, just like being the wealthiest country per capita in the world. So, uh, you, know, I, you know, I don't spend my life profession uh, looking to drug abuse and addiction. Cameron, you started to break up a little bit. Oh, sorry, sorry, that's weird. I'm in the same spot. Uh, how's that coming through now? Yeah, we hear you fine now. Okay, okay, cool. Yeah, I'm not a public health expert um, by any means. You know, that's not how I. That's not what I focus my my career on. Um, but when you think about public health outcomes and what drives those, um, you know. On per capita, the U.S. is like the wealthiest country in the world, and we usually think of like drug addiction really being tied to economic status, social status, um, life 
outcome opportunities as well as depression and mental illness and um, the lack of emotional health and well-being. Um, I don't think it's an accident then that you see this opioid epidemic really health in rural areas and suburban. Um, I'd be curious to see, you know, what rates of depression rates uh, look like and uh, a geospatial analysis and how that overlaps with, um, you know, like income across the country. There goes the urban planning. Urban planning. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, we actually were talking about how it seems like a lot of people between the ages of 24 and 28 really um, it's like a difficult transition for people and uh, how we both, Chabe and I both have like, personal relationships that uh, people who either overdosed or, or committed suicide in those ages uh, looks like we lost them. <laughs> Dude, he must have T-Mobile. <laughs> yeah, right? That it felt T-Mobile-ish. <laughs> it, felt, it feels like T-Mobile levels of failure. It's a specific feeling. Because I'm just saying like it, it's like he had a hard time downloading the app, and then when he got on, it was just super broken up. <laughs> yeah, it sounded like he was underwater. I think you got to be on Wi-Fi. I wrote once you, you bring. Say what? I wrote you fell off, and then I said the recording. Yeah. <laughs> 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 That's funny. Thing is that I hate about this is I can't go back in and add him back into the call. You know, that's so dumb. Like it just says, "Me and you are on here," and then finish recording. I'll tell you what, I I can pull him in on another segment. So let's try that. So I don't have to redo. It. We got you back on here. You on the Wi-Fi now? Are we back? Are we on? Yes, we're all back here. And magic. Yes, indeed. So I think we were just talking about how uh, between 24 and 28 seems to be like a tough transition for a lot of people. And, um, and we'll probably leave it for another podcast. But I do agree with you, Cam, that there's got to be some sort of trend to it that maybe on some other episode we'll dig in. In terms of this episode, we wanted to really uh, draw into your expertise about sustainability and it's interesting that we start talking about this during uh, this week where apparently Elon Musk was on the Rogan experience and just lost his uh, chief accounting officer and another one of his chief executives. Um, so, one, what, what do you think about Elon Musk as somebody who's worked in the transportation planning um, and uh, renewable energy space? And two, do you think that Tesla is going to survive as a company. Still there? Cam? Hello? Chabe, are you outside? Yeah, I'm, I'm inside. So I, I think we can hear Cam is. We can hear the background, but we can't hear. Yeah, for sure. Cam. That's super bizarre. Yeah. Maybe he doesn't know that he's actually on the call. Ain't oh. again. <laughs> well. 
don't know what to tell you. I mean, we. I feel like we've given it the good old college try. Wait. There we go. You're back. <laughs> that was magic. That was magic. You literally dropped on and then came right back. I didn't know that could happen. Me neither. <laughs> this app is a mystery. Mysterious ways. What was the last yeah. thing you heard, Cam? Uh, I'm thinking about it. I think, um, yeah, y'all, uh, you were saying both y'all have had people personally in your lives okay. uh, come to opioid addiction. Okay. So, yeah. So, basically, we wrapped that up, which was really bizarre because we could hear the, like, nature sounds that are around you in the background, but we couldn't hear your voice for, like, two God. minutes. Yeah, we went on to a whole other segment. <laughs> <laughs> and so basically what we what we moved on to was um, that it's an interesting week to have this conversation because Elon Musk um, was on the Rogan show this last week, uh, which has been all over the news today. But then also, too, his chief accounting officer uh, uh, resigned a couple of days ago and Another chief executive, I think, resigned today after his uh, Rogan experience appearance. And so we, we wanted to ask, what do you think about the man? And what do you think about Tesla? And will it survive? I do talk to people somewhat frequently about this. So um, my thoughts on Tesla, on one hand, I really appreciate and respect Tesla because they push the market, I think, to move in more nimble adaptive ways more quickly especially in terms of um electric vehicles and um solar energy integration into our society and infrastructure at a at a faster rate and honestly at the the rate we really need to if the world is really serious about its various renewable portfolio standard uh goals so in that regard i i appreciate the hell out of what uh elon musk and um tesla are trying to do on the other hand, from, I think, a financial perspective, you know, it's the thing of they push the market and they show there's a huge market demand for the product they're trying to bring to market in mass. But then they don't have the infrastructure to support um, the, the supply that they're, they're generating or the demand that they're generating. But who is uh, more nimble and adaptive in terms of their, their capital and their infrastructure for um, production are the major auto manufacturers around the world. So basically they run out ahead and be like, we need to be doing this. And actually a lot of people are like, oh, hell yeah, yeah, I'm totally down for that. Let's do it. And then like, actually, we can't really roll this out. And the quality that we want to right now or it really needs to be at. And then the auto major auto manufacturers like, oh, there is a huge market for this. Sure, bet we can do that. And um, then they, you know, they basically create or show that there's this massive demand and then they're not able to actually supply that demand. And then other business, much larger business steps in, takes that up. And so then they really have to move on to the next thing. So, um, you know, from a long term financial perspective, I I think they really have to change their their business model if the idea is to uh, get to the point where they don't have to continually raise money. through stocks and investments to eventually be like, hey, one day we're going to turn a profit on this and you're going to make a ton of money. Um, The dude has tons of charisma and vision, which is, I think, the only way in which you get so many people to invest so much money and 
his vision for the future. But I, I think he, they really got to really got to restructure their, their financial model. If that's their goal and moving forward, I, I'd almost love more if they work doing R and D um, for different like research labs that exist around the world. Um, yeah. Cause I, I absolutely appreciate what they, what they're doing in the market. Mm-hmm. Do you think that, uh, that his personality is kind of a double-edged uh, sword, especially with what's going on in the media regarding him lately, getting all this negative press, like getting in Twitter arguments, getting sued for slandering people. And then on top of all of that, he goes on Joe Rogan and has a few whiskeys and, uh, and hits a blunt and just starts saying <laughs> some wild shit. Yeah, honestly, I haven't heard any of the interview yet. I've been seeing it in my Twitter notifications and different news publication notifications, but I've been on that grind <laughs> this week. I can't just come back from like two weeks of uh, out-of-town work and vacation, so I haven't time to catch up on it. But what I have heard is the dude's incredibly stressed by the proposition that he brings to the world and really stressed in terms of the responsibility to shareholders and that long-term vision. Um, so, I mean, generally when you back people up in a corner, you know, there's idioms to say, you know, people's true colors come out. Um, you really see how people respond and react under pressure. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, I, I think the dude, he's just really married to his vision of how he wants to realize it. Um, and that's, I, I think that's a recipe for failure in, in business to not be adaptive and responsive to changes, you know? Yeah. So, I mean bad PR is never helpful, especially <laughs> when your, your entity is it's failing financially and running behind its own deadlines and you're just steadily trying to push things further. Um, and, you know, I'm doing this, this leadership, um, executive energy leadership Academy at the energy lab. And you talk to some of the, the long range thinkers and scientists there um, in terms of, you know, what Tesla is trying to do. And, you know, it's the thing of the, the changes we, we need and we're talking about in terms of transforming the energy grid and literally how we create electricity to maintain a certain quality of life in the world. Uh, on one hand, you know, like we got to do more, faster and better. But on the other hand, like if you rush into it and you're wrong and the technologies you want to deploy, you know, the thing of like, Say we reach 95% uh, EV penetration in the next, you know, 15 years, which is uh, probably absurd. Uh, but say we reach that, if our energy grid that's producing that electricity isn't a clean energy grid, then we're just increasing emissions, probably increasing volati- volatility and lack of reliability in electricity gear- grid, couple that with climate change, uh, lack of a resilient energy grid. And then couple that with the fact that, you know, you have to have, Good land use planning. You know, if people still are traveling on average an hour to and from work every day, um, it really doesn't matter what your fuel source is uh, because there's, you know, we we exist in systems, transportation systems, housing systems, employment systems, food production and movement systems in a a global setting. So um, to just rush headfirst into a a single technology deployment, um, on, on, on another hand, I do find that kind of irresponsible which is i think why you don't see more scientists and energy policy people um taking that sort of approach um so one hand i also do wonder uh, maybe it's a good thing that 
you know, what Tesla's trying to do isn't able to come to fruition. Um, you know, the whole thing of unintended consequences. So from what I hear you're saying, basically, is that solar and wind in and of themselves are not the panacea we think them to be. It's, it has to be not just the energy generation, but then also how the energy is transported. Right. Transmission, distribution, also how distributed is your energy generation, right? So think of if all your energy generation is in really rural areas and huge utility scale wind and solar farms, you still got to transmit all the electricity. And the further you have to transmit electricity, the um, more um, line loss you get. So the less efficient the delivery is. And if you're not coupling when and where your solar resources are kicking in, your wind resources are kicking in to complement each other between day and nighttime year round to supply the energy demand uh, you have across industry, manufacturing, um, you know, like major transportation systems, as well as like huge downtown cores during heat waves. And also the thing of like heating <laughs> right now our how we insulate buildings and how lack, how inefficient buildings are in terms of retaining heat and maintaining comfortable temperatures year round. Um, we don't have all the supporting infrastructure in place to, completely shift over to using electricity for heating so being up here in minnesota like that's a massive public health concern if you switch to a fully electrified energy grid and it can't actually supply the heating demand you have in the winter so i mean yeah i mean it's a thing of like you need hydro in there i think using um organic and waste collections for um anaerobic digesters and methane extraction um moving to maybe, you know, you're integrating piezo, uh, piezoelectric uh, crystals for energy generation from um, kinetic systems like in the, the transportation grid. Um, yeah, I mean, so I think we're always going to need, or at least in the foreseeable future, we're still going to need some really dense energy mass in the form of fossil fuel and natural gas for things like, you know, international airplane travel as technology currently exists. Um, but also, you know, as we build out our grid and our production system, as we distributed, you need a blend of small scale for residential, commercial to big utility scale. And it has to be really strategically placed within the grid. So as new technologies come about, we're able to nimbly adapt and integrate those technologies so that we're becoming more efficient, not just having to oversize our entire energy production system, you know, by 5x the actual demand. That's that's actually fascinating that you're saying when we're talking about green jobs that not all these green jobs would necessarily be putting up new solar panels or creating wind farms. Some of it might be just creating a, a better material for insulation or maybe a better tread on tires that make it so that um, cars are more efficient in, in how far they can drive um, and not consume as much fossil fuel. Yeah, or even the thing of, you know, the most efficient form of transportation from a greenhouse gas emissions perspective is walking and biking. So how you're designing cities and living and working environments and networks. So fewer people have to travel as far to get to and from work, groceries, entertainment, their social networks, healthcare systems. You know, it's a thing of like, if everyone actually only had to drive 15 minutes a day for their, you know, their travel to and from work and um, to get to supporting amenities um, to get everything you need, 
um, that alone, you're decreasing fuel consumption around the world by 75, 85%. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a, that goes a really long ways toward reaching renewable energy um, uh, goals in terms of what we're deploying, having a much larger impact toward those long-term greenhouse gas emission targets and goals. Um, so it's a full system thing, you know, if you have an entire city where everyone walks and bikes everywhere and your only big um, greenhouse gas emissions are coming from a long range like trucking, you know, that's that's a much more uh, sustainable, uh, resilient infrastructure and future for humanity. So it, it can't just be, you know, real pie in the sky um, solutions from technology, also really simple <laughs> things like a more walkable, bikeable, livable uh, space for communities. You know, we talk about like bring things in like food deserts and how those exist or the fact that, you know, we are um, trending toward a majority of low and moderate income people living in the suburbs, but disproportionately those are the same people who support our service industry, which generally isn't out in the burbs. It's more in the urban core with urban. So you have people getting paid the least having to travel the furthest where you have the least transit system and service in place because part of people getting to and from work you throw housing costs in there and i mean that's like this inversion of urban renewal is i mean a lot of people would argue it's creating even broader economic inequality and thus economic dead weight loss within the economy so you currently are a solar technical and planning advisor at the metcalf uh, of the twins yes. so you work for a nonprofit that's sponsored by, I guess, the cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul, I would assume? Mm, kind of. Um, so the Met Council gets funding. One, it's a, it's a metropolitan planning organization. So most of your major metros in the city have a federally designated planning organization for that whole metro area. Um, so there's federal funding that comes in. The Met Council is unique as a metropolitan planning organization in that state statute um, as well as uh, joint powers agreements and revenue sharing uh, means a lot of different tax bases go toward funding the Met Council and its operations for the whole metro area. So it's really a mixed pot of state, federal, local finance. Um, our organization is also unique in that we're, I think, I think we're either one of very few, or if not the only one where we manage the transportation, the transit system for the whole metro or the vast majority of it. We also manage the vast majority of, uh, wastewater treatment in the metro. Uh, we also manage the regional parks and trail system for the whole metro. We're also a Section uh, 8 housing voucher um, administrator for the metro for all municipalities that don't have their own administration. So, I mean, we do it all, right? <laughs> it's data, it's research, it's housing, it's transit, transportation, um, wastewater treatment services, and working with the various uh, water sanitation and watershed entities in the, in the region. So um, my question is, so working for the nonprofit and being a planning advisor, I'm guessing that part of your job is to decide what private companies you contract for solar projects. And my question about that part of it is, is do you see in the private sector, so you said like you don't kind of like, or there's some negative um, possible impacts of something like an Elon Musk coming out and trying to tackle this thing. But do you see um, in utility companies um, the drive to make all these changes that you suggested um, earlier on when you're kind of just describing the marketplace? 
Yeah, actually, I do. Um, I'll say one, my favorite utility in the country is Green Mountain Power in Vermont. And they actually reclassified as a B Corp as a utility so they could be more nimble and adaptive in their responsibility to their customers and that they didn't, they don't, now they don't have nearly as much of a responsibility or really they don't have a responsibility to shareholders anymore. Their responsibility is to their customer base. So Green Mountain Power Territory, you know, they're bringing on solar arrays, wind turbines, they're doing backup battery storage, they're developing on closed landfills and super fun sites. And as they've done all that, the retail rate for customers has stayed the same or gone down. So in light of the national rate of inflation, retail rates go down every year since Green Mountain Power has really started this work over the last, uh, say, four or five years, really in earnest. And so here in Minnesota, you have Excel Energy, which is one of the largest electric utilities in the country. They have some service territory in the Denver metro as well as Texas and a couple other areas. And, um, you know, so Excel Energy has the, the largest renewable portfolio standard of any utility in the country, 60%. Um, renewable energy generation, um, the vast majority of that being wind. And so what you've, that didn't happen because the utility wanted to do it. It happened because advocacy groups, nonprofit and research entities went to the state's public utilities commission and said, our independently owned utilities need to be um, undertaking a concerted effort to develop a much more robust renewable portfolio standard because that's tied to greenhouse gas emissions, climate change, public health, reliability of electricity um really the puc kind of mandated that the utility are independently owned utilities in the state start bringing more renewables online and as they found like oh actually it's cheaper now for us to use wind generation to create our electricity for our customers um that's been their biggest thing that's why excel has a i think it's a 1.8 gigawatt um wind project i think it's a maybe a three phase over the next three years at this point next two years in north dakota south dakota minnesota and a little bit of iowa um where they're bringing all that wind online because that's the cheapest form of electricity so it's really you know advocacy and research started that push the investment tax credit supported that um, not as a subsidy but more as an investment which is why the installed price uh per kilowatt hour megawatt hour is drop precipitously for solar and wind because you know that tax credit is more or less served as a uh, a risk buy down with deploying that technology and freed up more money to go on research and development and the private side the research side nonprofit side um so really you know it was, it was a comprehensive team effort but really it was driven by people people who cared um and elected officials and appointed officials who listened well, you said subsidy as a, or it's an investment as opposed to a subsidy, but at the end of the day, it's a tax credit. So couldn't it be spun either way? And I'm sure it has been, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it, I mean, and with that, right? I mean, I, that's one of the major things I view government is existing for. If the government can help buy down the financial risk of any sort of uh, undertaking or investment. It's cheaper for the government to serve debt than this the private market because it's generally smaller in scale. Um, but you know, it's the thing of at the ITC, the investment tax credit, is you know it's being tiered and it's going to go down and go away. And, you know, so I think uh, a good litmus test right now for what's this, the financial status of wind and solar um, is with you know the new steel tariffs that have rolled out. And if you look across the country, the the installation rate and development rate of 
wind and solar, it, it really hasn't slowed down in the country. Um, so like me personally, if you talk to a lot of commercial industry people, they're fairly optimistic that by the time the tariff tears off in a way, solar and wind will still be at a really cost competitive rate. And some cases slightly more expensive in other cases, slightly less expensive than coal and natural gas. Um, and the thing with those is there's more, I think from a national security perspective, you don't have to worry about destabilization and oil prices internationally or national natural gas internationally. Um, in terms of that driving the availability of that resource to generate your electricity because your wind and your solar is going to be there, um, which is, uh, you know, I think why the National Renewable Energy Lab is still pretty well funded. <laughs> what about other regions? So you talked about Minnesota and Vermont, and then uh, the XL is also in Colorado, you know, in the, in the Denver metro. Um, but I would mm-hmm. assume that most... Um, fossil fuel emissions, most emissions aren't necessarily coming from these regions to begin with. I would assume most of them come from the coast. Yeah, I mean, where you have your your biggest clusters of humans, industry, and manufacturing. Um, what's interesting in that is we now, in the last year, passed the threshold where you, electric generation isn't the number one greenhouse gas emitter now. It's the transportation sector. Okay. So that's, that's, that's one thing. And then the other, your biggest population states in the country, I believe, are, you know, like New York, uh, Florida, Texas, and California, like those biggest population states. California's producing so much solar that there's a mandate from the state's PUC to bring energy storage onto the energy grid because they were starting to have to give it away at times because um, it kind of shifted the electricity demand of when people get home. Um, so it's the thing there. They're, they're bringing so much solar and wind online they're starting, they're already being pushed to the next phase. Like, okay, now we got to start being able to store this, integrate these technologies better. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so we can use these more efficiently. We don't have to oversize our system. Um, Arizona, you're saying massive gigawatt size. Arrays come online. Texas has over a billion dollars um, in solar and wind investment slated for investment in the year 2018 coming into it. And that's Texas, some of our largest markets in the country for uh, solar development right now are North Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Texas, uh, Oklahoma, um, Arizona, Nevada. So, um, I mean, Colorado's absolutely up there too. Massachusetts, you know, you don't necessarily think of a, a New England state of as a, being a state where you would find a lot of renewable energy development, but Massachusetts is one of the some of the best renewable energy um, uh, mixes for their energy generation. So you're really seeing it across the country. Illinois, with their new Jobs Act for clean energy, they've seen a a massive increase in capital coming into the state for renewable energy development. Um, But in Texas, you you didn't have that sort of legislative uh, move, and you still saw that sort of development because it makes money sense, you know. And so I, I think that's where the really important rub is like when it comes down to it, if you can throw altruism out the window, environmental responsibility, social responsibility, if it just makes the most money sense, like that's probably what's going to happen, which is I think why you're seeing it in regions across the country. So are you saying that now uh, sustainable energy practices are better um, in terms of creating a profit essentially? than uh fossil fuels is that is that am i following you correctly 
Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of states right now, that's the cheapest way in which you can generate electricity with wind and solar. No, simple as that. <laughs> There's more states than not where, it, especially if you're doing it at a utility scale, so something comparable, the energy output for wind and solar, where it's comparable to the energy output of a new coal or natural gas, a combined natural gas production facility, um, wind or solar is the, the cheaper alternative there. So, and this is a more complicated question, which I understand if it's above your pay grade, just because it's the really big picture question. For sure. So <laughs> all these projections of Florida being underwater by 2050, of uh, northern states having the temperatures of Texas and, and uh, Arizona by 2100, are you saying that, the, that, that we are on track to avert that worst case scenario or more things to consider yeah so it's like good and bad news um on one hand we're seeing renewable energy uh development and deployment across the u.s mexico southeast asia is one of the largest renewable energy investment markets in the world the last couple years uh but with that um this was something i i learned at the national renewable energy lab at my last session where the director was telling us You know, we did the math in terms of how many wind turbines, towers, and solar panels we would have to manufacture as a global uh, society in order to meet our renewable energy standards per our current uh, electricity usage rates, as well as our projected ones for growing populations and more and more people coming into the middle class and developing countries, you you know, developing robust energy systems. And just the rate, it would take us, I think he said something like 300 years to manufacture enough solar and wind to actually meet our renewable energy standards we need to stay under that. You still there, Kim? Don't think here. I'm here. <clears throat> so Cam fell off. Chow Bay is still here. Let's try this one more time. I was trying to think of like a renewable energy related joke, but I got nothing and I'm ashamed. <clears throat> one last and we're back. And there we're... we go. Okay, cool. So, Cam, last thing you were saying was that Southeast Asia is making a push for renewable energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of people around the world making that push for really good reasons. Uh, manufacturing rate is kind of our big constraint right now. Uh, but you always got to view it on two sides. We're creating electricity to meet demand, right? So if you're bringing down demand while also increasing that manufacturing rate, um, there's much more that. We can actually meet these targets and goals globally, but it's going to take a really a much more concerted and intentional uh, push to meet that goal on the energy efficiency side um, in terms of consumption on a per capita basis, much more efficient um, systems that we utilize as well as bringing the renewables online and um, a, a really efficient integrated manner. So in the meantime, you're saying that <clears throat> Excuse me. Don't abandon the plans of moving moving north quite yet. 
<laughs> yeah, not not quite yet, for sure. But I mean, no shade on Florida, but I wasn't trying to be down there anyway. Uh, but I hope they do all right. I hope they hope they figure it out. <laughs> Chad, do you have any questions for uh, for Cam before we uh, close out the episode? Um, what do you think? Um, what do you think? The biggest threat to the environment is what is something that if we had to focus on now say if we if the situation is dire as we know it to be what is the most important aspect of this to focus on i know you talked about how we have to diversify and it's going to take a long time for us to reach our goals but what's that first thing that we need to get focused on dang okay uh uh honestly the first thing came to mind were food and water you know, uh, nothing um, destabilizes a society like not having food and not having water. Um, you know, a lot of that's tied to electricity, right? Because, like, how does water get to your place, wherever you live or reside? Like, you need electricity for pumps to pump it there. Um, but on a, on a really basic human level, like, uh, our, our most basic human needs, other than, you know, like, being around other humans in terms of social support and love um, are food and water, honestly. And I mean, how food is grown in the world and how it's moved about and how so much food at our grocery store wasn't grown with even 500 miles of where we live. Um, you know, the, the, the globalization of food production, um, you know, that's honestly the first thing that comes to mind. And the movement of food and the availability of water that's, you know, able to be drank without making people sick or killing people. You know, those systems are dependent upon transportation systems, uh, governance in terms of um, social um, kind of a minimum, minimum quality of life. You know, like we eat a lot more food per capita in the U.S. than in Europe. Right. So that it also gets to the uh, demand side or. The fact, like, a third of the food we grow in the world never actually gets eaten. Um, you know, like, in the U.S., a lot of food we grow, we don't even put in grocery stores because it's not the ideal-looking fruit or vegetable. So, like, people won't eat it. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of on the demand side as well. But, I mean, I think it really has to do with the focus. You know, what's the, the focus and intention? So, a lot of the, the groups I'm in doing different advisory groups and organizations for long-term strategic planning these various organizations whose charge is to reshape the energy grid or, you know, stop climate change, adapt and mitigate. Um, a lot of times the conversation doesn't start with, well, what do we want the future to look like in terms of uh, how humans utilize the environment and live with it? Um, which is really what it's all for, right? We're trying to uh, curb climate change to save the world so humans can still live on it. Um, so if it's not a world worth inhabiting and people don't see value in, we're not really not saving the world, um, or at least not for the vast majority of people in it. So I, I say really focusing, you know, like I'm a huge Hayao Miyazaki fan, right? And mm -hmm. becoming an adult, I realize all his films, <laughs> there's really strong themes of anti-capitalism, anti-colonialism, strong environmental stewardship and um, communal support, as well as um not being so dependent upon technology um that's that's another huge component like technology um in terms of you know um 
using technology to solve all our ills and problems. And I say that in terms of new cutting edge technology um, that because, <clears throat> you know, humans live for thousands of years without, you know, cutting edge technology in terms of electricity and the Internet of Things and the cloud. Um, so that, that's my personal philosophy and something I try to center a lot is instead of looking toward um, technology and we just need to make technology better to save everyone and, you know, save the world. Really, it's like, well, we got to start looking in the mirror first and ask how much we actually value the lives of other people and the environment that we're supremely dependent upon, which it's really easy to forget about living in a city. So uh, I'd say the biggest need is really, yeah, centering people and the natural environment. If that's your priority, then every decision we're going to make is going to benefit everything we're dependent upon, which is each other and the earth itself. I'm sure business people don't really like hearing that. (laughs) Right? Right. <laughs> I mean, I don't really see a marketing opportunity in consuming less and, um, <laughs> you know, trying to think about others. I don't know. I'm seeing that on the, <laughs> I'm seeing that, uh, that kind of creep through the uh, discourse in our, in our politics now on the right, where people are just accepting that they're not going to do anything about climate change. And I'm seeing people say that it's just some type of a hoax in order to slow down our, uh, our economic machine. I mean, how would you go about re-educating people or how would you go about convincing someone that this is a dire threat and that these re- resources are finite and that we do have to maintain them? Yeah, I mean, I think about that a lot because a lot of my job is talking with other cities and organizations that are across the political spectrum every day. And, you know, sometimes you come at it from an environmental stewardship perspective. And, you know, for those who come at it from like, yeah, but what about like our tax base and revenue and jobs? And it's like, well, you know, the fastest growing job sector in the country, it's not data, it's not tech, it's not startup, it's clean jobs, clean energy jobs. Like in Minnesota last year, that was the number one um, uh, job growth sector in the state was clean, renewable job sector. And, you know, I pull up the example a lot. I'm, I'm always fascinated by looking at Texas and California, some of our biggest states and um, some of our largest producers of economic productivity, right? Major international ports. Um, a lot of raw natural resources as well as agriculture comes out of those states. And the way they go about that is polar opposite in a lot of ways from a policy perspective. But in both those states, both states are investing or allowing the and permitting the investment of tons of money in renewable energy. And you could say some are doing that because we need to do it to save the, other, the planet. And if you ask people in Texas who were investing in pump jacks in West Texas why they're also investing in transmission lines and wind turbines and solar, you know, like, are you doing to save the planet? Like, nah, man, it's because it makes money. That's why I'm doing it. You know? So I I also play on that one a lot as well. Right. And it's like, there's a lot of money to be made because, you know, if we're talking about reshaping uh, the energy grid as a whole and how uh, we live in homes and how they're constructed, all that's all work that has to be done. And that's a ton of capital that has to be raised to, create that future 
So if I'm in, you know, if I'm in investment, I'm in business, um, I'm looking at something that like, yeah, we're going to need to be doing this for the next 80 to 90 years. Uh, tons of new construction, rehabilitation, redevelopment, new development, new systems. Uh, so that's, that's, um, you know, that's, um, that's huge opportunities for capital gains, investment returns, and for um, really, you know, like getting an early foothold in the market and really being able to grow that faster than other people um, and other entities. So the way I look at it, it's like, yeah, man, if I had, you know, $500 million to invest, I'd invest in renewable energy, not just because, you know, I, I believe that's what we have to do to save humanity, but also it's just a really good investment right now, you know? Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Is there uh, anything else that's going on um, at the Met Council or in the country that you want to shout out before we uh, wrap up the rep- episode, Cam? Uh, yeah, I'd like to shout out all the people selected to this year's um, uh, 40 Under 40 Professionals in uh, Energy. Uh, that list just got announced for the, uh, the Midwest region per um, U.S. Energy News. Uh, and I believe the other regions, they had their 40 under 40s announced. And, um, yeah, seeing people doing great work, really living out their passions and trying to uh, change the world for the better and not leave behind large swaths of the population behind in that effort and that movement, that, that gives me optimism, hope for the future. Um, I, I don't really think you work in the renewable energy field or environmental advocacy unless you're optimistic about um, the, the changes we're going to be able to realize in the world. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on this episode. I know we went a little bit over the five or the five o'clock deadline that you gave us. So thank you for the extra five or six minutes. And uh, man, just really insightful, uh, deep stuff. I'm gonna have to re-listen to it and look up some of the terminology. Most of the terminology, I followed you, but some of the stuff in there, especially around uh, electricity generation. I'm gonna have more questions for you in the future. <laughs> hey, for sure, man. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Yeah, I say, like, get learned on it so you can be a part of the solution, man. All right. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for your time. Hey, pleasure, y'all. Be easy. Later. All right. What do you think about that, Joe? Oh, we're all going to (laughs) die. Oh, man. No, I mean, I... I think he uh, that I, I'm I'm in the same boat as you. First of all, I'm definitely gonna have to do more research on it. That's why I was so quiet this episode because I'm just fascinated, and there's so much that I didn't know about it. And uh, yeah, I think it's gonna be a process. I think uh, we're it's a little too late to alleviate a lot of these effects of climate change that we're gonna be seeing in our lifetime. But I don't think the fight is over. I'm not a full on pessimist just yet. What about you? Um, in terms of philosophically, um, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with my family recently about the idea of positioning. You know, it exists uh, not only in terms of marketing when it comes to positioning a product, like uh, kind of what marketplace you're trying to play in and, and what c- customers are you trying to attract or appeal to, but it also exists in the finance world in terms of, are you going to buy at a, at a certain value and value do you expect to be realized? And I think that there, I agree with you. There are certain effects that I don't know that we can completely avoid at this point. And I would say that I would always encourage people 
to be forward thinking, like in the long term and position yourself in a way that maximizes your long-term opportunities. And I wish it's something, I mean, you could take it on a big picture level, like in terms of, all right, we know climate change is going to happen. We had these crazy fires out here in the West this last year. Um, but it can also just be in terms of your own interpersonal life too, like who you decide to marry, where you decide to go to school. Um, I think that we're coming to a time we had in the post-war period, we had a supremely abundant time in 1950 and 2000, probably the, at least one of the most abundant periods of human history for a while. Um, and we might have to go through another period of uh, upheaval and scarcity. And uh, the people who are going to make out the best are going to a best position. Mm -hmm. So, um, who you got for uh, Evil Genius of the Week? My Evil Genius is going to go to Cory Booker. <laughs> All right. That shit show. Did you uh, see any of the Kavanaugh hearings? Yes, I did. Yeah, it was painful. The whole thing. All of it. But um, I, ju I just had a problem with um, some of the theater that was going on. And I think Cory Booker was being disingenuous in his... Uh, his Spartacus moment, as he called it, I think it was everything, but I think he was taking the opportunity to uh, make an offering at the altar of social justice so that next uh, election cycle in 2020, when he runs for president, he can, uh, he can look back and say, look at what I did. Look at these sound bites. And he's basically begging them, to to punish him for doing so and they and anderson cooper actually pressed him on that earlier today i believe or yesterday saying you know uh you you were allowed to release those documents nobody was stopping you from doing that so i thought that whole thing was lame but you must you must have also thought it was smart if you're giving him evil genius oh well yeah i mean it it's obviously working i mean it's working in his favor I was surprised that Anderson Cooper called him out on it, honestly. Uh, and again, remember, I don't always think that evil gene, like, I, per, so I'm about to say my evil genius, and I don't always say my evil genius is actually evil. It's more on the genius side, but is a mischievous component to it. That's what I think of it, too, unless we're talking about Putin, and then it's both. <laughs> Mine this week is going to be uh, the big name in the room, Nike. Um, I thought it was a brilliant business decision. I've heard a lot of people talk about different reasons why. I've heard the term bet on black, which I thought was very interesting. Um, but one way or another, I think that they're reading the tea leaves of this president. And I think Nike rightly um, so thought that they have more popularity with the American people than Donald Trump. And I think we're seeing that play out and it is working in Nike's favor. And plus, yeah. it's just one ad campaign, so it's not like they're married to it the same way that you are when you elect a president. Yeah, exactly. It, from a marketing standpoint, politics aside, it was a brilliant move on Nike's part and, to capitalize on uh, political sentiments and a deep uh, rift in our culture. Leader of the free world. Yeah, leader of the free world. You already know it's going to be Joe Rogan today. Really? This is coming. 
Yeah, because this is coming from a journalistic standpoint. I'm not talking about the backlash. Well, let's talk about it all. I'll tell you why I think he, and I think we need to offer these caveats and maybe change the name, names of these segments a little bit, or maybe you and I will have different angles. Because when I say leader of the free world, I just think of somebody who did something I thought was good. Yeah, that's fine. That's yeah, so. Maybe that's too. Yeah. I think what he did with getting Elon on the podcast and getting them loose. I know a lot of people probably don't uh, pay attention to those little coffee mugs that you see on real time with Bill Maher and Jimmy Kimmel and literally every single talk show. But a lot of times people are putting liquor in there because it gets the guests a little more loose and you get a better interview that way. And every now and then the, uh, the guest will break the fourth wall and be like, yeah, there's vodka in here. <laughs> and that on Joe Rogan, they don't do that. So he just busted out the whiskey with Elon Musk. Uh, they started talking about some crazy stuff. Elon, it, he, he was very open. He, and from a human standpoint, that, that human part of me is like, you know, I really enjoy seeing this part of Elon Musk. We never get to see him sit there for two hours and have a, an honest, open discussion about not only what he's doing and what he likes, what he doesn't like, but how he's feeling, how it feels to be him. It was brilliant. Uh, I guess we could call it journalism on the part of Joe Rogan. I mean, I've always said that the best interviewers are the ones that make you feel comfortable like you know their brand before you get there. And I feel like Elon felt like the Rogan podcast was the best way for him to get some of this stuff off of his chest. And we obviously saw the negative effects of it. Neither Rogan or um, Musk seem to be too worried about that as they've been resharing it all day on social media, talking about how much fun they had. And I like that despite the uh, implications for his company, despite anything else, from a purely journalistic standpoint, I think Rogan had a moment there. I think that interview is going to be uh, really important when we look back on Elon Musk's life. Uh, years from now, obviously, when we're looking at his legacy, we're thinking, wow, we've never seen this type of vulnerability from a, uh, a figure like that before. And then Rogan talking about chips and just making it funny. It's it's it was surreal. Honestly, the whole thing was. Yes, I really do want to see it. I actually might watch it after our recording here now, and uh, you will not be disappointed, man. <laughs> I think Rogan has, has changed the game in so many ways. And uh, what's the guy's name that you uh, find fast, Scott? Um, the guy who's kind of. The, the jury's out whether or not he's a misogynist, basically. Scott, who is who is this person? Uh, you mention him all the time. Um, who He goes to, like, different campuses, and people try to shut down his his speeches. Oh, Jordan Peterson? Jordan Peterson. I'm thinking, I'm, I think uh, the reason why I thought Scott was because he's Scottish. <laughs> yeah, he's Canadian. Is he? Yeah, he's very much Canadian, and I don't think he's a misogynist, but I mean, the the jury's out in the sense that a lot of people think he is, and a lot of people think he's not. I think we'll have to, you already talked about wanting to do an episode on this, so we'll do it in the future, but I will preview it by saying, I don't, 
think he's said anything outright misogynistic, but has a really interest, uh, interesting perspective. I mean, he definitely believes that there's a difference between men and women. And he is not always asked about that, but he always offers that. And that's, in some ways, I feel like he's inviting that controversy because he's so adamant about doing so. But I digress. Yeah. We'll get it. We'll get into that one later, which will be a good episode. So back to Joe Rogan. Um, I think, you know, he has created this platform that so many people aren't having related, inspired so many people. Do I think every episode is good? No. Um, but he's planted so many seeds with his episodes and, and like creative seeds that have blossomed in all sorts of other ways. Um, and in that way, I can see why even above and beyond of just doing something you like that you could see him as a leader of the free world. Cause he's definitely a leader of free expression. Yes, for sure. And he has a lot of reach. And I mean, if you type Elon Musk in, in Google, that's the second thing that comes up is the Rogan episode. So it's, he, that was, you could say his biggest guest to date. I, I can't think of anyone that has a higher profile than Elon Musk that's been on there. The Jamie Foxx one was pretty, pretty good. Yeah. Jamie, the Jamie Foxx one was good. The Mel Gibson one was weird, but those are the, I think those are the biggest celebrities, but. He, yeah. had, a, he had a moment there with his Scientology series that he was yeah. in that narrative. Yeah. Um, but either way, yeah. So I have uh, someone who is the de facto leader of the free world, but I can't give it to him this week because he's not all the way where I'd like him to see in taking leadership. And then I have um, this week's leader of the free world uh, who surprised me. So the de facto leader of the free world um, who still has more work to do for me as Barack Obama. He did his speech today in Urbana, Illinois. And boy, man, the dude, he is just the quintessential American leader right now. I mean, he still sounds good. He's still the same guy. And uh, I mean, he's, he's like the, um, who's the building kit guy again one more time? Terry Crews. He is like the Terry Crews of politics. But not like the one from Idiocracy. I mean, like, literally, if Terry Crews was a politician instead of a motivational speaker. Or you could even say he's like um, the, he's, you're not my guru guy. Um, the super big motivational speaker. Who, oh, uh, Tony Robbins. Tony Robbins of politics. Um, I mean, he just, he gets the people going. <laughs> but... Um, the problem is, is that, you know, I think for whatever reason, he's trying to stay away from running for another office. And it's like, if he ran for another office, he wouldn't be the first president to do so, you know? And I, so I don't see how it would be a negative for him to be a governor or a senator again. Yeah, maybe it's not the same thing as being the biggest law of the land, but you know that you have that capacity to make a difference. Just do it, you know? Mm-hmm. Then in terms yeah. of... My surprise, um, my surprise leader of the free world. Uh, so I grew up um, knowing about Amy Klobuchar. She's the senator from Minnesota. And she was always seen as kind of like this quiet librarian, uh, just pedestrian. Like she would never say anything too controversial. Um, 
and that's how she climbed the political ladder. And I thought she did an amazing job in the hearings in that she actually got Kavanaugh to say quite a bit, but never came off as grandstanding. Um, and I was really, really impressed with Amy Klobuchar in that um, in those hearings, if you saw her speak at all. I did not. I was only able to catch it in segments. Okay. Yeah, there's one segment where, because he put one of his um, opinions about, I want to say, whether or not a sitting president could be indicted. He wrote it in the Minnesota Law Review. And so she uh, kind of chimed in there, but then asked him some some serious questions about it. And I think she asked it in a way where he thought, oh, this is innocuous. But upon listening to it again, you're like, whoa, he's actually saying quite more about how he feels about this than he did a lot of those other questions where his guard was so high up. And I think that that, she has a unique value. And I think she took a unique leadership role in doing that. And I'm a little bit more excited now to hear how she becomes a, a leader as opposed to how I felt about her in the past. Okay. What do you think about, but to go back to Obama, what do you think about um, him holding office again? Not um, just, just political. Yeah, well, obviously, yeah. Um, I am not sure. I think he definitely should jump back into the fray. And uh, as long as he doesn't start towing this insane party line, I think now is the time since he's already served now's the time for him to be more of a straight shooter and drop the politics because he is, as you said, uh, one of the most charismatic people on the planet. And he is really great at what he does. When he talks, people listen. I think he needs to help the liberals calm the fuck down (laughs) and get us back to some type of level-headedness before we go into 2020 so we don't do this again because the way it's going now we are snowballing into Trump 2020 and we're locking it in ourselves. And if Obama comes in and toes the party line as it stands now, because we've seen him change his tune when, when it's appropriate to do so, as far as what the uh, dogmatic criteria of the party is at the time, if he does that again now, then I'm not interested in him being on the scene at all because I don't think it's going to be helpful. But if he's going to come in and try to corral liberals into sensibility and a sense of duty and, and focus, then I'm okay with that. I think he'd be very helpful. I think that what he can do that very few other liberals can do is he can expand the reach of the Democratic Party. I think that to he who? has a presence... He actually has relatively moderate politics and that there's a lot of conservatives that actually have a certain level of, not like a ton, I mean, but there is this segment of conservatives that have a level of respect for him and that he could pull them in to change at least what this current, um, what the Trump administration looks like. Because there's a lot of conservatives that to them, the Trump administration was not the kind of conservative administration they wanted to see. Yeah. Um, and there was one other Oh, I also have one other thing I'm going to throw out there and just see what you have to say about it. I think that this op-ed in the New York Times was actually a strategic tactic 
to get the conversation off of all the negative press Trump would be week. Because I think they, I think someone in there knew. I did in Pence because um, you know they're making this conjecture with the Lodestar stuff. Um, yeah. That by having somebody do something that looked worse than what Trump did, it took the honest off Trump. What do you think about that? I think it's an interesting theory. It's too bad Alex Jones is deplatformed. We would have found out what he thinks about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it you, of course. <laughs> Say what? <laughs> it would have been you, of course. Oh, of course. But uh, no. Something, <laughs> about, like, something about like goats and possibly a spaceship. Hopefully. But no, um, I, I think it's jacked up no matter what. So I, first of all, I think that's an interesting theory. I don't necessarily believe it. I think it is probably a low-level staffer that is trying to find a soft place to land for when they get fired having worked in the Trump administration. I don't think it's a senior official, and I think the New York Times is garbage for running this article. Really? Yes, because you can, how are you going to publish something anonymously like this? It, it doesn't seem ethical at all. Why? Because if you're going to have... Uh, someone making claims like this, then there has to be some type of fact checking. Like if they're, they're posting it anonymously is saying, uh, look, we're, we're free and clear of all possible fact checking on this. But Deep Throat was anonymous and that brought down Nixon and Nixon was clearly doing some illegal stuff. Yeah. So that's when it does end up working out. So sometimes uh, ethics have to be kind of flexible and I understand what you're saying there when journalists actually have to take up the activist mantle but I think the uh the modern New York Times is a far cry from the Washington Post back in the Watergate days but I mean we'll see what happens I don't uh I didn't think it was really I don't think it was a bombshell I don't think there was any anything of substance to it. I mean, who doesn't know that the Trump administration is in complete disarray and that people are trying to keep him from pushing buttons and opening locked doors? I would, I would imagine they're nerfing up the White House to keep him from hurting himself. It's, I don't think anybody's surprised by any of this. Yeah, I mean, even Obama in his speech today came out against um, the op-ed thing. You know, you weren't elected into office. He like he disagreed with uh, Trump multiple times in his speech, but he he said to the person who released the op-ed, "You weren't elected to office." So, I mean, this is what pisses the American people off is when unelected people are affecting policy. Mm-hmm. And he's absolutely right about that. I mean, unless it was some extreme scenario, there it was just bad. Like I said, on all accounts, I thought it was just dirty. Indeed. Well, I'm I'm getting more excited for 2018's election cycle than I thought I would be. I can tell you that right now. Yeah, it's going to be messy. <laughs> well, that's what our that's what our democracy has always been. Never yeah. forget 2000. <laughs> the two <laughs> you talk about yeah. <laughs> the God, that was ridiculous. <laughs> I man, I I watched that CNN docu series, the 2000s. It was really good, and it kicks it off with that the election and 
I had forgot because I was in middle school. You know, I didn't forget the whole thing. I remember the gist of what happened, but I just I, I didn't remember exactly how ridiculous it was Dude. and how long it carried on for. On HBO, there is a HBO made movie called like The Recount or something like that. But it talks about the whole thing. Like it shows the whole you so you should definitely watch it. I watched it, it was really good. And the guy from um uh Michael Clayton, not um not George Clooney, but the the guy who played like the senior attorney who went crazy. He also was in uh Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. He was the doctor. He plays Pat Buchanan. Oh my god. So good. <laughs> It's so Florida. Like, they definitely captured Florida in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's funny. So, yeah, yeah. definitely worth checking out. Well, hey, man, I think it's a pretty good episode. I'm looking forward to the next one, and then uh, we'll talk soon about um, some of the – I think we got a couple of new episode ideas that came out of this one. So Yeah, I think, yeah, it's going to be good. I'm looking forward to it. Happy Friday, man. Indeed. Internship next week. So we'll be moving to the weekends and we will keep in contact with you all shortly.